Well, good morning. It's nice to be with you. My name is Brian Zare, and uh, I agreed to come and speak here. I was excited about coming to, to be at what we called our Exponential One Day so Leadership Workshops and stuff. Yesterday was great, and as Donnie and I were talking, Donnie and I have been friends for a few years, he said, hey, why don't you come and speak on, on Sunday morning, too, at one of our campuses? It'd be great to have you. And I, and I said, sure, that'd be great. And then I said, so what's the topic? <laughs> it's my privilege to be here today to talk to you about hell. <laughs> Which is a, a little bit ironic. When I was in college, I visited a small country church where the preacher spoke about hell. Actually, he didn't speak a whole lot. He screamed. He screamed fire and brimstone. And to this day, I'm not sure what brimstone is, but I didn't want any part of it. It was about 90 degrees inside. The air conditioning was turned off, I think, on purpose. And he scared me so bad it was freaky. He, he looked out, and I, I swear he looked right at me, and he said, You want to go to hell? You're on your way. And I was like, ah, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't even like Halloween. I mean, it's just one of those things. But I don't know if you've noticed, lately, hell is making a comeback. Lots of people talking about hell again. Take, for example, back in May when Osama bin Laden was killed. People interviewed on the streets said things like, he's in hell now, he's getting what he deserved. People who lost family members, 9-11, talked about bin Laden being in hell. There's even a New Jersey politician who went on record, and I quote, he said, may he burn in hell for eternity. Okay? Same kind of thing happened again in July when Casey Anthony was found not guilty in the death of her daughter. There's an explosion of talk and Twitter and Facebook and all kinds of, not just social media, everywhere. People talking about her going to hell. And in bookstores this past year, books on hell from authors like Rob Bell and Francis Chan, they're just flying off the shelves. There was even one book where an author claims to have had a near-death experience and spent 23 minutes in hell. So we can learn from that that there are clocks in hell. Who knew? (laughs) But on top of that, There's all sorts of references to hell among us in pop culture, be it Seinfeld episodes or there's a Simpson episode where where Bart goes to hell, literally. There's ACDC songs where they're talking about going to Vegas, only they're on a highway to... Yes, thank you. One person has the courage to say it in church, right? There's movies that poke fun at the devil, and then there's scary movies that leave us terrified and unsure. It's confusing. Hell is a hot topic, pun intended, and it lends itself to all kinds of confusion. There's talk about hell, there's pop culture references to hell, but at the very same time, very few people actually claim to believe in hell. In a recent national survey, 68% of people said they don't believe in a place of torment and suffering that anyone goes to after they die. While 68% don't believe in hell, 76% do believe there's a heaven. It's confusing. It is confusing. And for many of us, if there is a hell, it's sparsely populated by murderers and genocidal types. It's for people like Hitler and Stalin, Saddam Hussein, Duke fans. (laughs) There's a couple of you that probably just told me to go someplace, didn't you? You know, we say we don't believe in it, but at the same time, we send people to hell with our words. We write 
We read about hell, and we're definitely curious about hell. Here's a couple of emails that are asking questions about hell. One person writes, If God's love is truly infinite and extends down to everyone, including the worst of all sinners, how come his forgiveness doesn't extend to non-believers, but rather leaves them to burn in hell? It's a good question. Uh, here's another one. See if you can you know, catch the contrast here. My question is, what are the essential differences of the Christian God's flaming ovens of hell, where those who don't meet God's standards will burn, and the ovens of the Second World War Nazis, who similarly, you know, people who did not meet Nazi standards were burned. Wow. It's interesting. And I think that's why today's I don't know question is how could a loving God send anyone to hell? You ready for it? I have a couple of disclaimers I want to make as I get into it. First, uh, I want you to understand, I don't want anyone to go to hell. I don't need, I don't have any need for anyone to be condemned or burn in eternal damnation. I say that because maybe you've experienced, I I have in my past where you hear a Christian speaker talk about hell and you almost see a, a gleam in their eye or a jump in their step like it's something to be excited about. Um... No, that's not me. And secondly, I feel no need, no right, no obligation to condemn people. Not you, not anyone. This is not fire and brimstone. The truth is there are a lot of things about hell that that I don't know. I I don't know. Having said that, there are some things that we can know based on what the Bible has to say. And so let's answer the big philosophical question by addressing some more specific questions. Here's the first one. The question, is hell real? What do you think? Is hell real? See, for this church, the Bible is the truth source. And according to the Bible, it's very clear that there is a hell. You know who talks about hell more than any other person? Jesus does. Jesus often says the things that no one really wants to hear, but he's always telling the truth. In just the first gospel, the book of Matthew, Jesus speaks of hell at least 12 different times. Here are some of the words he uses to describe it. Fire. Eternal fire. Destruction. Existence separated from God. Darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And gnashing of teeth is that anguished sound people make when something really awful has happened. That kind of sound. It's a very intense expression personal pain. Have you ever noticed that there are a lot of comic strips, you know, Farside and whatnot, that will depict things of hell, and they're they're funny, but they have subterranean caves where people are tormented by devils with pitchforks and horns and pointed tails, and that's not what the Bible talks about at all when it talks about hell. And while the Bible doesn't give a lot of descriptors about hell, Jesus does use words that bring pictures to our mind. Images that we can grab a hold of, things like fire, utter darkness. Another time in Mark chapter 9, Jesus speaks of a person going to hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Virtually all theologians believe that these images that we get from Scripture about hell, they're metaphorical. And when I say metaphorical, somebody says, well, that means that they're not real, right? No. 
What it means, when metaphors are used in the Bible, it's because language falls short of the literal truth. Fire and darkness are vivid metaphors to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God, when we're far away from him, when there's no connection. Jesus isn't using this graphic language just to scare us. It's just that life apart from God is hell. Hell is being completely separated from God and all that he is and all that he brings. The book of James in the New Testament talks about how every good and perfect gift comes from God. So every blessing we receive on on the earth, people who don't believe in God that receive tremendous blessings and love and experience, they experience the goodness of God even if they don't believe in him. And in this description, it's talking about all of that being void as far as hell is concerned. The word that Jesus uses most to describe hell is the word Gehenna. Gehenna was an actual valley outside of Jerusalem that was basically the city dump. It's where people threw their trash to be burned. But in addition to that, and this is, this is horrific, it's when, when people would die and they didn't have families, this is where they would throw the bodies. And that's where this worm reference came from. It's not, Jesus isn't talking about earthworms, he's talking about maggots. And Jesus, again, using earthly imagery to describe a place that is completely and eternally void of anything that has to do with God. That's hell. And the Bible's pretty clear that hell is a real place. So if that's true, and that's the answer to the first question, here's the hard question. Who's it for? Who goes to hell? And why? Now, before I go there, I want to make sure that, um, and maybe this is the most important thing you need to hear being here today. And that's this. Even in the context of understanding hell, God is for you. The reality of hell is not a declaration in any way that God is against you. The greatest truth in all of the world is this, is that God is passionately, urgently, relentlessly in love with you. Nothing changes that. Not time, not situations, not what you have done. Nothing changes it. And I hope and our prayer is that you know and you experience how much God is for you. And I think this is important because I think that we often get confused about how God feels. Maybe we think that he enjoys something that he doesn't. And maybe, maybe we think this way because we tend to enjoy the suffering of people that, that we don't like. Think of it this way. Let me give you a kind of a tame example. The other day, I'm, I'm driving in my car. I said I'm from Chicagoland, and um, one thing that you have here that's just beautiful is actually a lack of what we have in Chicago, and that is Traffic. You have traffic. No, you don't have traffic. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm sitting in my car on Interstate 88, 8 o'clock in the morning. Maybe that's, that. you know, if Jesus was walking the earth today, that is the imagery he might have used for hell. <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm late. I'm sitting in the right lane. When suddenly, to my right, shoo, some car goes flying by me on the shoulder of the road. Highly illegal. He doesn't care. He's flying. And the things that went through my mind, I actually thought about praying that something bad would happen to him. 
you know, there's a cop ahead that gives them a ticket. There's a bridge. I, I don't, something. Things, <laughs> things going through my mind. You see, there is something inside of us that when someone does something to offend us, we want something to happen to them. Now, that's a tame example, but when someone hurts you, when someone does something so wrong to cause you pain, the natural reaction for us is that we, we get angry. We want there to be pain in their life. We want there to be a consequence that is fitting to what we think is right. We want to hurt them. And because we are that way, we assume that God is that way and that he has created hell because he's ticked off or angry or wants to punish us. But the truth is, God is not like us. He finds no pleasure in the punishment of anyone. All the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, God is saying how he, he reacts to our wickedness and our sinfulness, how he responds in our worst moments. This is what it says. But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and they live? A more accurate translation is, I find no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. You see God's heart? He's not saying, yep, you messed me up. You didn't do what was right. Here you go. Then later on in verse 30, he says, Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you each one according to your ways, declares the sovereign. Excuse me, according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. You see, God is not trying to destroy you. God is trying to stop you from destroying yourself. He's saying, no, 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 it doesn't have to be this way. I don't want this for you. Over and over again, God makes it clear that he finds no pleasure in the punishment of even the most wicked person in the world. He is different than we are. In the New Testament, in the book of 2 Peter, it says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see his motivation? He doesn't want anyone to be lost. He wants all people to change their hearts and their lives. So before we can even talk about who goes to hell, we have to come to a clear understanding that God doesn't want it. God finds no pleasure in the pain of even the worst of people. And he desires for everyone, no matter how vile, no matter how evil they are, to come and find their way back to him, to connect with him. That's his heart. And the bottom line is this. Hell is being separated from God. God is not trying to send us to hell. God is trying to keep us out of hell. God is not so upset with the world that he's just dying to send us to hell. No, he actually died to keep us from hell. So who goes to hell? Jesus tells a story about two guys that die. One of them's a rich man. Another one's a beggar named Lazarus. 
And Lazarus is the poor person who spent his life outside of the rich man's door as a beggar, as a homeless person. And as they both die on the same day, they go to heaven. One goes to heaven, one goes to hell. And as Jesus tells the story, he says, now the, the beggar, his name is Lazarus, he went to heaven. The rich man went to hell. This is shocking to the people because in their mind they're thinking the only way you get to be rich is if you're totally connected with God. And if you're totally connected to God, it would, you know, the consequence would be that you go to heaven. Jesus says, no, it's not like that. So this scandalous thing gets everyone's attention. And Jesus says, now the ones in heaven, ones in hell, from hell, the rich man somehow sees the poor man in heaven and he calls out to God and he says to him, hey, have pity on me. Why don't you send Lazarus to dip his fingers in the water and to come and to, to give me just a little bit on my tongue, to parch, you know, this agony that I'm in. And I want you to notice a couple things in the story. First of all, as Jesus tells it, the rich man's name is never mentioned. His only identity in the story is his money. He's rich. And this is how it is in this life, and that continues in the next. And notice how the rich man talks about Lazarus. It's like he sees him over there, and he still thinks the same way that he thought on the earth. He thinks, that guy should serve me. God, could you tell him, make him come and take care of my needs. See, even in hell, he still thinks about himself. The man's way of life on earth was all about him in Jesus' story and his needs. And according to Jesus, that continues in hell. He never turns to God. He's only focused on me. He lives this life far from God in his sin, goes into the next life in his sin, and he's still far from God. That's hell. Now, I want you to hold on to that for a second because I, I want to talk a little bit about sin and what sin does. You see, whether it's greed or lust or envy or hatred or self-righteousness, these are not imperfections or mistakes. These are things that can become life-consuming, eternity-altering. They're our lifestyle. So whose sin is so serious that it would result in hell? I'd love to be able to tell you that, you know, it's people like Hitler who go around intentionally, cruelly killing people. Those are the ones whose sin is so serious. But that's not what the scriptures teach. So I get off the highway, finally, I don't think anything happened bad to the person who went flying by me. I don't know. But I'm late. And so I'm driving. All I'm thinking about is this appointment that I have to have now and that I'm late and everything. You know, I'm, I'm rushing as fast as I can. I'm driving through neighborhoods. I'm doing what I can to get to where I need to go. Everything in my mind at this point in time is all about me. I am self-absorbed and I'm in a hurry. And I'm getting ticked off because people are driving slow. I hate that. You know, life would be so much easier if it wasn't for all the other people. You know what I'm saying? And so, so I'm driving along, and then all of a sudden I, I literally notice, how come everyone is driving so slow? And at the ex exact same time that I notice that, I see this yellow little flashing light on the side um, of the road. And I'm, I'm in a school zone, which at least for us means you've got to slow down to 20 miles an hour, and it's like a big deal. It's right there by the... And as soon as I notice that, I also notice another set of flashing lights that are directly behind me. This is not funny. 
And this is a big deal because they don't give you a ticket and say, have a nice day, here's your fine. In Illinois, if you get caught speeding in a school zone, um, you have to go to court. And so the cop's making a big deal about this, and he's writing me up, he's in his car, and I look over and there's these, these moms with little tiny children. And they're looking at me like, what? How can you be driving this fast? This is a school zone. These are my children. And I'm, at this point, I'm feeling really bad, you know? Because I'm like, yeah, yeah, that was me. I did that. Cop comes back around, says, you have to go to court. You know, this is, you're going to have to pay a price. And everything in me just wanted to say, and I did say to him, I, I didn't mean it. That, that really mattered. As a matter of fact, it's incredibly expensive when you get caught doing something like, we should take like a separate offering right now just to help me <laughs> with this. Um, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to. You know what I was doing? All I was thinking about was me. Everything was about me. I didn't think about the world around me. I didn't think about what, what the safest, what the best things were. I didn't think about it. I didn't mean it. But I still did it. And there are times in my life when I accidentally, like that, do things that are wrong. They still count the same, but they're wrong. But you know what? It doesn't just stay there, this whole concept of sin. If I'm really, really honest with you, there are times in my life where I have disobeyed God and I knew I was doing it. Where I dishonored God and I knew it. There are people close to me and people far from me that I've hurt throughout my life. Um, and sometimes it's been inadvertently because all I think about is me. But sometimes I even, I knew what I was doing. I did. And sometimes, yeah, it's through my actions. Sometimes it's through my inactions my lack of actions to help people that are in need. Do you know that about 30,000 people die every single day of hunger or hunger-related disease? And how many people do I walk by that are hungry? I don't even care. I don't even think about it. And some of you are going, geez, Brian, we don't even know you. You're a little bit down on yourself here, aren't you? I don't think so. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And though I have done some, hopefully, some good things in my life, I'm not innocent. And too often I have loved me more than God. Too often I have loved me more than others. So who goes to hell? Me. People like me. If I reject God's love and mercy for my life in this life, because just like the rich man in the story, if it's all about me in this life, and if I reject God in this life, that's what God will give me in the next life. You see, the answer to the question, why does a loving God send people to hell, is this. He doesn't. God simply gives us in the next life what we choose for ourselves in this life. Because he wants to love us and he wants to be loved by us, but he does not violate our free will. We each have a choice. And if I choose the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus, in this life, I will be with God in the next. I take it with me, that choice. 
And if I've rejected the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus in this life, then I will also take with me into the next a separation from God. You know, it's not so strange to think that in the end, heaven is something that we choose by God's grace. But what a strange thing that perhaps hell is something that in the end we also choose by rejecting God and his grace. What a remarkable thing that hell is something that some of us or perhaps some that are close to us might just in effect choose. We'd like to think that hell is something that a person is sent to by this impossible to please God. But that's not the way that it is. Hell is not because God rejects us but because we reject God. Dorothy L. Sayers was a great Christian writer. She puts it this way. She says, In hell you get what you want, if that is what you really want. If you insist on having your own way, you will get it. Hell is enjoyment of your own way forever. So let me be as clear as I can be. If you choose to be with Jesus in this life and place your trust solely in him, you will be with him in the next life. And if you choose to live life where you don't want Jesus in this life, then you will be without him in the next. And in my own research, that's what the Bible says. This makes sense to me. There's still a lot of questions that I have, things I wonder about, like why doesn't God give people another chance in eternity? I, I don't know. And if God wants people to be in relationship with him, why does there seem to be a final no? I don't know. But I do know that hell is real and that hell is bad and that hell is final. And who goes to hell? Only people who have continually over and over again through this life rejected God's love and said no. What we choose in this life is what we get in the next. And so I've talked a lot, maybe too much, about me. The more important question to me is what about you? What are you choosing in this life? Because God is patient. God is waiting. He's already chosen you. That's why he died. Why Jesus died. He's choosing you. But will you choose him? He's not going to force himself on you. And so I want to finish the message just by giving you the softest challenge that I know how. And that's to say, are you willing to stop playing down the seriousness of your own sin? Are you willing to stop declaring that, you know, I'm a pretty good person, I'm not as bad as others? And are you willing to say with your own heart, God, your grace, your mercy, I need your forgiveness. I want to be with you. For me, I I choose Jesus. I choose Jesus. Because what I know I get in this life, I take with me in the next And maybe that's what you can do today too is just very simply just choose Jesus. Uh, Let's pray. God, thanks that you do make some things clear and that you allow us to wrestle with things that we may believe or even not believe and not know why. And I pray that this would become more and more Uh, rooted into our lives, your great love for us. 
that you do whatever you can to give us an eternity, an eternity that starts now, but an eternity that spends every day, every minute with you. And so God, I choose you. Jesus, I choose you. And I pray for everyone in this room at whatever um, degree that we are certain of or even wrestling with, that we would take a step and just solidify the choice we make. We choose you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.